ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. The Gaza war has most obviously inflamed Middle East tension, but the religious tinge is also engulfing European politics. We've seen areas where there's Muslim MPs or um, areas where the constituencies have got large Muslim populations. Those parliamentarians, those politicians will tend to take a much more pro-Palestine approach and stance and want to call for ceasefire in the conflict. While in areas where there's large Jewish populations, there is a more pro-Israel approach. And that, that's something that we've seen playing out across a big part of Europe. Hello there, it's the Religion and Ethics Report. Andrew West on RN and ABC Listen. That story is soon. Now, Dutch nationalist Gert Wilders, he's been a fixture of European politics for 25 years. After last week's election in the Netherlands, though, he's closer to power than ever. His Freedom Party topped the poll. But just as Wilders is quite possibly edging his way into government, in Poland, the nationalists, they're on the way out and religion was a factor in both elections. Wilders' party is historically anti-Islam. Poland's outgoing Law and Justice Party styles itself as the standard bearer of the country's Catholic values. Jan Werner Müller is Professor of International Politics at Princeton University. He writes about Poland in the current edition of the London Review of Books. We discussed both elections earlier. I think Wilders won because he himself moderated. That played a role. He made people believe that he wasn't as bad as, in a sense, he had been in terms of doing things like banning the Quran, closing mosques, things which simply legally constitutionally are not possible. Secondly, and more importantly, though, it was center-right parties and, in the broader sense, conservatives, who basically broke the dam that had kept him out, who was signaling that, you know, he was right about making asylum policy such a big deal. There might even be a possibility of having coalitions with him. It wasn't really about, you know, people necessarily now thinking very differently. It was much more about the other parties basically concentrating on the issue, namely immigration, refugees, and so on, as opposed to what people actually, if you look at surveys, cared much more about, healthcare, cost of living crisis, and so on. So they validated the far right in advance, and they even basically signaled that even if you vote for the far right this time around, it might not be a wasted vote because you might be willing to kind of work with this person. Mm. So I think it was a very special outcome. And I think we should be very careful with the sort of notion that, oh, this just shows that sort of naturally everything is going in the direction of the far right. Mm. I do wonder, though, Jan, whether the Gaza war and the overtones that that had may be playing a role, not just in uh, Netherlands politics, but forthcoming European politics. May well be. I haven't seen any evidence of that. I think it's much more about these very concrete decisions by particular politicians of how they play these elections. I think if they do signal to voters that basically the way that the far right talks about certain issues is right, and they basically copy the rhetoric of the far right, or even worse in a sense, if they signal in advance that they're open to having coalitions with the far right, then you get very different kinds of outcomes. Yes, events matter, of course, but what also matters and what we don't always see is that actually what's driving certain developments is not necessarily changes in public opinion, 
one of my former colleagues here from Princeton, Larry Bartels, just published an important book showing that actually on a whole load of sort of sensitive questions that tend to work for the far right, be it you know European integration in general or refugees, public opinion has not dramatically changed. What has mm. changed is the behavior of elites. And that's something that I think we don't always talk enough about. Yeah, well, let's talk about that briefly, because is it possible to keep a party like Gert Wilder's party, which topped the poll, it got more than a third of the vote, is it possible to keep it out of government? Well, I mean, they only got they only got 37 seats. So yes, it's, it's huge. I'm, I'm not denying that. If, if enough other parties got together, it would be very easy to keep them out. I think, though, we've also learned the hard way that the more you see this kind of dynamic, that parties which are quite heterogeneous in terms of their programs, nevertheless then unite in order to keep somebody else out, that basically is very helpful for far-right populists because they can then say to their to their voters, look, I always told you, you know, they don't care about their programs really. All they care about is, you know, continuing their corruption or they want to keep out the one person who tells the truth. I mean, this was... Very obvious, for instance, in Italy, Mm. when in the end the Social Democrats and Berlusconi got together just to keep the five-star movement out. And Beppe Grillo, the founder of the movement, you know, could very easily then say, look, I always told you guys, you know, it looks like the parties are all different, left, right, and so on. But ultimately, all they care about is, you know, keeping hold of the state and keeping us out. It's a difficult maneuver to pull off because in a certain way, you seem to be confirming what the populists have been saying all along. I mean, my mind goes back, as probably yours does too, all the way back to, I think it was 2000, 2001 in Austria when Jörg Haider first came to power. And one of the rationales for that was that Austria just had a constant series of post-war coalition governments. So if you didn't like the government, (laughs) there was nowhere to go other than Jörg Haider because the centre-right and the centre-left were always in power together. Well, I'm glad somebody remembers that episode. (laughs) I think that can easily be turned into an argument for populists. Although, to be fair, I mean, there have also now been many other parties in Austria. So it's not like there's no other option at all. But one other lesson maybe that is also worth bearing in mind from that episode is that those who basically included the far-right in government often kind of winked at people and said, look, you know, we're going to show that they're completely incompetent, that they can't really govern. Next time around, they will basically disappear from the scene. And that wasn't totally wrong, because they really did prove bad at governing and also very corrupt in certain ways. But they fully recovered. So this idea that, okay, we're going to destroy them by including them, I think that remains also in play as a kind of very simplistic idea about what to do. And I think that's been disproven very comprehensively. And there, you know, as you know, we have enough far-right populists in power around the world at the moment. And no, they're not all, you know, wildly successful by any means. But the idea that they will automatically self-destruct, I think that's proven very, very naive. Mm. Let me turn to your really fascinating essay in the current edition of the London Review of Books about Poland. First of all, what does the recent election result in Poland reveal about the influence of the once very powerful Catholic Church? So maybe there's a lesson here that we've also seen play out in other contexts, that if the church too closely identifies with a particular party, it actually ends up being harmful for the church. We've very often seen a kind of dynamic that especially young people might then feel, okay, religion is something that's associated with, you know, in this case, a far-right party that seems incredibly intolerant, that doesn't have any time for, let's say, some of the messages of Christianity to do with love thy neighbor, charity, and so on. 
it actually is in the end harmful for the church, which even in Poland, I think, has been confronted with an increasing sort of or, or accelerating process of secularization. But something similar, I dare say, for all the national differences, you might also see in the in the U.S., where more and more young people, while still claiming to be spiritual, are kind of becoming more disenchanted with religion because they sometimes simply feel religion is what Republicans do. And, you know, these are intolerant people and people who are very nationalistic and, and so on. So if that's religion, I don't like it. Yeah. So some something of that dynamic might be going on. Well, as you say in Poland, it wasn't simply a matter of the Catholic Church, which uh, still has a lot of public respect, but it wasn't simply a matter of the Catholic Church stating its moral or social positions. To what extent were they really getting in, almost actively endorsing the Law and Justice Party in an explicit way? So two points, if I may. So one is that they clearly welcomed the decision by the Constitutional Tribunal effectively to make abortion impossible, something that even the government itself actually hadn't really been able to push through and that, that it certainly would not have put to a referendum because it was pretty clear that they would have lost it. But the church loved this and didn't seem to mind that this was a really problematic way of basically implementing a policy that really many, many people had disagreements with. But secondly, maybe it's important to remember that you know the main opposition party, Civic Platform, you know, which is often described as liberal. And in a sense, yeah, compared to law and justice, they are more liberal, no doubt about that. But if you look at their previous stance on abortion, it was not exactly liberal. So in a sense, for a long time, Poland has this situation where you feel like, okay, you have the far right, and then you have what's more like a center-right party, which is, again, it's becoming more liberal now, and they've, they've sort of softened on certain questions. But the left basically has not really made an appearance at all in a very long time. So it's a very peculiar political situation. Isn't, though, one of the more simplistic descriptions of the Law and Justice Party as a far-right populist party? Because when it comes to economics and questions of, you know, solidarity, didn't it actually triumph back in 2015 by moving to the left? I mean, it effectively wiped out the parliamentary left by stealing its thunder on economics, didn't it? Yes, I think that's broadly speaking right. The left previously had done what a number of nominally centre-left parties in Central and Eastern Europe had done. A similar story can be told about Hungary. If they had sort of followed the kind of Tony Blair third way, for lack of a better term, let's call it somewhat neoliberal path, and then simply wasn't seen anymore as a credible builder or at least defender of, of the welfare state. And the Law and Justice Party, you know, made promises. Uh, many people at the time said, you know, they're irresponsible promises, but they carried them out and they didn't break the budget in the end. So they scored uh, very much on that on that count. That's true. At the same time, I think we got to remember that economics is not really what the far right is about. The far right can be relatively opportunistic. So it can discern a certain open political space and says, because nobody else is offering something there right now, we're going to do it. I mean, you mentioned Jörg Haider earlier, the Austrian far right, or think about what used to be uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen's party in France. Nobody remembers that in the 1980s, they were actually both pro-European integration and very pro-market. And then later on, they realized, okay, we see an opening in a different area, and we switch to that. What never has changed 
is there, to put it bluntly, incitement against foreigners, against refugees, against immigrants, against certain minorities inside the country? That's really what they're primarily selling. And then what they sell in addition politically in economics you know, they have some leeway in terms of how they basically package their product. Hmm. I was very interested to read in your piece where you refer to uh, Viktor Orban, the Prime Minister of Hungary, as recreating what he calls a Christian democratic Europe. What is different, though, about Viktor Orban's version of Christian democracy to that of what was basically the dominant post-war political philosophy across Europe, which was Christian democracy in Germany, in Italy, in some of the Nordic countries? What's different about what Orban is doing? So one important difference, I mean, there are many, but the one that I would specifically highlight is that the post-war Christian Democrats were not enamored with the nation state. In fact, many of its leading figures remembered that in the 19th century in countries like Germany and Italy, newly unified nation states actually went after Catholic minorities with the usual argument that, you know, these people are going to be loyal to the Pope and not to the state. So they had no investment in moral value attached to the nation state as such. If you listen to Orban today, the nation state will always figure in his definition of what Christian democracy is truly about. And that will then in turn justify his basically conspiracy theorizing about the European Union and how they're kind of trying to destroy his country. And this would have been completely alien to post-war Christian Democrats who were at the forefront of creating European integration, deepening European integration, because for them, the nation state didn't have that much value in and of itself. To be fair, you know, if you look at leading Christian Democrats in Europe, today, be it in Germany or Italy or other countries, um, you don't have quite the same fervor. And many of them, you know, will in a very clear way also defend their own national interests. But historically, and if that's the right word, philosophically, Christian democracy really was very clearly anti-national. And if nothing else, you know, Orban is a rabid nationalist. So that's where they certainly clash. Yeah. Just as we wind up, Jan, uh, you say in your piece, and there's a salutary warning here, the centre-left has to think about, in a way, how has it contributed to the rise of these populists? I mean, what does the centre-left have to do to reflect on its role in the creation of this mentality? So it's a very simple question. I'm glad we have three hours left to go into some of the details. (laughs) Uh, What I would simply say in a very shorthand way is, first of all, I think what we've learned is that making concessions to the far right, very often based on an empirically very misleading picture of, oh, all workers, you know, have conservative worldviews and don't like foreigners and so on, doesn't really work. I mean, never mind whether it's ethical, but it doesn't work because people, like in the Netherlands now to some degree, are going to say, look, you know, why should I vote for the copy if the original is actually on the on the ballot? And secondly, yes, I think it does matter that sometimes the left has abandoned policies that would have been seen in the past as clearly social democratic in favor of something that, again, for lack of a better term, is more neoliberal. I think what matters less, even though it's always played out big time, is sort of issues around, for shorthand, culture war. I think there are some broader lessons in terms of what, broadly speaking, social democrats should be doing and also what temptations they should ideally resist. But there is a disposition, though, that some on the centre-left have 
an elitist or even condescending disposition because you refer to it in your piece. I mean, Donald Tusk, the likely new Prime Minister of, uh, of Poland, <laughs> at one point exhibited this. I'm not saying that you couldn't find examples of this, but I think the story that, again, if I may, may use the US as an example, that we're always told that, oh, you know, liberal bicoastal elites day and night are saying bad things about, you know, rednecks and flyover country and so on. That's sort of an invention of polarization entrepreneurs. These are the people who want to tell people via talk radio or Fox or whatever, look, you're being disrespected and so on. Again, I'm not saying that empirically you couldn't find any examples of this, but we should really be careful with sort of taking this at face value as, oh, this is the empirical reality. All these people are sitting in, not sure what the Australian equivalent would be, but, you know, in some fancy hipster bar in Brooklyn and talk day and night about, you know, some poor farmer out out in the countryside. That's a piece of ideology. That's not a piece of empirical reality in this country. Mm. Professor Jan Werner Müller, he's at Princeton University and Jan's latest book is called Democracy Rules. Many thanks for joining us again on the program, Jan. Pleasure talking to you as always. Thanks for having me. This is the Religion and Ethics Report where you're hearing about the links between religion and the news that's shaping the world. Pope Francis has cancelled his trip to Dubai. He was going to address the COP28 summit on climate change. He was going to be one of the headline acts, but he's been filled by a bout of the flu. Francis turns 87 in December. The flu hasn't stopped him from cleaning house, so to speak, in Rome. The Italian press is reporting the Pope has finally had enough of arch-conservative American Cardinal Raymond Burke. He's reportedly evicting Burke from his Vatican-subsidised flat. He's paring back his pension. Uh, Burke is known for his flashy apparel, the, the long silk gowns, the velvet gloves, and also for his repeated claims that Francis is causing schism in the church. Meanwhile, in Australia, 300 religious leaders and religious workers have called on the federal government to transfer the remaining 64 asylum seekers who are still in Papua New Guinea. They want them brought back to Australia. The signatories include Catholic Bishop Vincent Long, Anglican Bishop Mark Short, Baptist Minister Tim Costello and Shadi al-Sulamain from the Australian National Imams Council. The Gaza war is most tragic for the peoples of Israel and Palestine. It's also proving difficult for centre-left parties in Europe. Across the continent, social democrats are really conflicted over their historic support for Israel and the Jewish people and their more recent sympathy for the occupied Palestinians. Eleni Correa is a senior writer with Politico Europe. She's co-author of a major story on the predicament of the European left. In most European countries, or in many European countries at least, we've seen a real political divide between MPs and parliamentarians based on religion in in their response to this conflict. So at least in the UK where I'm based, we've seen areas where there's Muslim MPs or um, areas where the constituencies have got large Muslim populations. Those parliamentarians, those politicians will tend to take a much more pro-Palestine approach and stance and want to call for ceasefire in the conflict. While in areas where there's large Jewish populations, there is a more pro-Israel approach. And that, that's something that we've seen playing out 
across a big part of Europe. France, for example, is in the particularly challenging position of having the biggest Jewish community and the biggest Muslim community in Europe. Why does that make it so hard for the left? That makes it really difficult for France and for Emmanuel Macron as president and for the left, which has been divided on this. It just means that the left is being pulled in two directions in its response to this very difficult and sensitive issue. You know, in France, it's caused a lot of community tensions, which has just been a really big problem there. And we've seen Emmanuel Macron, the French president, recently call for a ceasefire. He's the first major Western European leader to do so, going further than the US and the UK have done on this issue. It seems that he decided that he wanted to go in that direction, but that's been a very difficult issue for him since the war began. What about Fakir Starmer in the UK? Because here he is, he's probably facing an election which he is overwhelmingly favoured to win sometime in the next 12 months. Why should he be worried about uh, how the Gaza war is dividing uh, Labour supporters in Britain? So it's a fascinating question and a fascinating issue, really. I mean, this has been the biggest political problem, probably, that Keir Starmer has faced during his leadership of the Labour Party, which has lasted about three and a half years now. He has had more than a third of his MPs call for a ceasefire, something that he is not doing. He's following the US and UK government positions on this, calling for humanitarian pauses to the conflict. But a lot of his own parliamentarians and a lot of his voters and councillors in sort of local sort of parishes around the UK are calling for him to go further. We've seen lots of resignations. There was a parliamentary vote where about half a dozen shadow ministers resigned in order to be able to back a ceasefire. That's a really challenging position for him to find himself in. The funny thing about it is that it hasn't had any impact on his poll rating. Keir Starmer is the envy of other European left-wing leaders because he has just such a huge lead on the Conservative, the ruling Conservative Party. He's widely expected to win the next election. And that still hasn't changed. So despite the fact that he's faced this big political problem with a lot his party being split on this issue, it hasn't affected his standing among the voters. And therefore, he doesn't feel like he has very much to worry about. He's happy to stick with his position. He's trying to manage his party as best as he can. He thinks he's doing the right thing and that the voters aren't agree with him. Yeah, yeah, but he might be wise to read the article that you co-authored in Politico, because uh, what did one Labour shadow minister tell you, which might give rise to concern for Keir Starmer? Yes, it's a good point. So one shadow minister told me that Labour was hemorrhaging Muslim votes massively, that they would lose seats if there was an election tomorrow, so that this would impact their election chances. And to be fair, that is if Labour strategists and people around Starmer will be looking at that very closely because their biggest concern is basically that the next election is going to be very close. So an issue like this could actually mean that they lose, you know, half a dozen seats maybe, and that could be a really significant number that deprives them of a majority or gives them a kind of a, a smaller majority to play with if they did win, because they've just got such a huge conservative majority to overcome if they were going to win, that every seat will count in the next election. Eleni, where would 
Muslim votes go if they don't go to Labour as they have traditionally done? The Muslim community is very diverse and it's wrong to assume that a very large community all thinks the same way. But if you just look at past trends, it has been a comfortably Labour voting community. Where would those votes go if they desert Keir Starmer? That's a really good question, one that probably Starmer is thinking about and thinks that the reality of it means that he won't be particularly damaged by this in that, you know, the UK's party system is basically a two-party system, Conservatives and Labour. But if we had a big number of Muslim voters who wanted to protest against Labour's policy on Gaza, they wouldn't vote Conservative, which is kind of further along the spectrum in being pro-Israel on this conflict. So they would have to go to smaller parties like the Green Party or the Liberal Democrats, both of which are backing a ceasefire. But in most constituencies in the UK, that means their vote won't really make a difference because most constituencies will just be Labour conservative ones. Mm. But, you know, it, it could mean that the Lib Dems do better than expected in some areas, the Greens do better than expected in some areas. That will be the main challenge for Labour. There's always the risk that when a war becomes the subject of a political debate, it then transforms into a debate about immigration and multiculturalism. Is that happening across Europe now? Unfortunately, yes, there is an element of that. It gets spilled over into that. And sometimes far-right parties try to weaponize issues like this to advance their own cause. In the UK where I'm based, this became an issue because The Home Secretary, who was on the kind of right wing of the the Conservative Party, was using some pretty punchy and some people would say incendiary language about people protesting for Palestine. She called the pro-Palestinian marches hate marches, basically was saying outright that she thought the people marching for Palestine were opposed to British values. Mm. And the Prime Minister ended up firing her and reshuffling his ministerial team as it, partly in response to, to what she was saying. So we've really seen that debate reignite in this country and in other parts of Europe, mm. where people kind of seize on the public response to the conflict in various communities and try and use that to advance their own arguments about multiculturalism and integration. Eleni, this is not in the uh, the piece that you wrote, but uh, as uh, one of the authors of the very popular playbook column, you would know about this. In the UK, has the debate over Gaza given new life to the former Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn, who has been suspended from the Labour Party because he was uh, considered soft on anti-Semitism? He's been a long-time supporter of the Palestinian cause. Has this breathed new life into his political career? Because there's been so much speculation as to whether he would run for his seat, but as a left-wing independent? Yeah, it's a really good question. Jeremy Corbyn's also, he's thinking about his next steps. He was also thinking about potentially running for London mayor. That's another thing that he has been looking at. But, you know, beyond his own plans, he hasn't really had a resurgence at all from this because he's not a member of the Labour Party and the Parliamentary Party anymore. Keir Starmer's been very clear given the stance he has taken and just more broadly this in the past couple of weeks that there isn't really a way back for Jeremy Corbyn. And even the the MPs and the members on the Labour left who want Starmer to back a ceasefire in Gaza and take a more pro-Palestinian position aren't really talking about Jeremy Corbyn or 
calling for him to sort of come back. I mean, I think that tells us mostly something about Corbyn, whatever people think of his views. He was never really a kind of natural leader. He was not never somebody who put himself forward in that way. He ended up as leader of the Labour Party almost by accident after he, you know, he entered the contest to diversify it back in, I think it was 2016, and ended up, you know, doing really well and winning. But he's not somebody who would put himself forward in a situation like this and come to the fore. So we haven't really seen him as a personality for Surge. That's Eleni Correa of Politico Europe. That is it for the program. You can find us at ABC Listen. You can leave a review of the program because it does help others find us uh, if you look for us on other platforms. A big thanks to Hong Jang and Roy Huberman. I'm Andrew West. Join us again for the Religion and Ethics Report. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.